0: Our scripture reading comes from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, from the New King James Version. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, liking nothing. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story that never actually happened. When the prophet Ezekiel was with the exiles in Babylon, the biblical record says that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. He had an amazing vision of God's glory sitting on his throne and of the four living creatures that surrounded that throne, language very similar to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. By the way, it's an amazing story and I would encourage you to read it. I would give you a specific reference, but I'd rather for you just to read the entire book of Ezekiel and you'll find it. The Bible record says that as Ezekiel was seeing this vision of God, God spoke to him and said, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations who are rebelling against me. And then the Lord said, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And he told him that he wanted Ezekiel to go and to speak that word of warning to the, to the people of Israel almost immediately you appreciate the fact that this is not going to be one of those easy preaching assignments. He's not going to go and conduct a positive mental attitude seminar. He's going to go and he's going to rebuke the people because of their sins and warn them if they do not come back to God, then there will be consequences that they must pay. He also gave them two conditions, and I'm not sure that the word condition is the right word here, but it's the one I'm going to use. There's two parts of this because God told Ezekiel, now listen, if you warn them about their sins and they don't repent, then the consequences and the results is going, going to be on their own head. They, they will be blamed fully for, for that sin. But then here's the part that Ezekiel has to watch out for. He says, if you do not warn them, then their blood will be upon your head. That was, that was Ezekiel's job description, warning people about their sins with, with eternity weighing in the balance. And Ezekiel said, Lord, that's just not something I'm comfortable with. I think I'll pass. Now, if you're at all familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you know that everything that I just told you is absolutely biblically correct, except the ending. That there was nothing in there about Ezekiel saying, listen, I'm not really comfortable with that. And I sure don't want to go put myself in some kind of awkward situation by making the people feel bad about their sins, and I'm the one who's telling them, and and, and I'm a little bit concerned that if they don't like the message, they'll kill the messenger. So if you're familiar with the book, you know that everything that I told you is is correct except for for the end there. Now, it's probably true that Ezekiel was not comfortable with that preaching assignment, but to his credit he did it anyway. He went and did exactly what God had told him to do. Now there's two statements that I want to make this morning that I really, really want you to remember. I hope that you'll take these home with you. I hope that you will mull over them, that you will digest them, and that they will become a part of your spiritual mentality. And the first statement is this, no Christian ever grew spiritually simply by doing only what was comfortable. Let me say that again. No Christian ever grew spiritually by doing only what was comfortable. That is, by refusing to do anything that that is inconvenient or outside of our comfort zone. The second statement is similar to it, simply expanded. No church ever became all that it could be and all that God wants it to be by doing only what is convenient. And by refusing to take on anything that that its membership may be not comfortable with. In fact, the Bible, if you'll check it, from beginning to end is the story of people who were challenged over and over by God to do things that were incredibly uncomfortable. They were sometimes even dangerous, but they were necessary in order for them to accomplish God's will in this world. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find that that was true of the Israelite people. It seemed like they were uncomfortable most of the time. And that certainly was true with those early believers after the church was established on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They were always having to put their necks out, to put their lives on the line. And to be uncomfortable, to get outside their comfort zone in order to be able to carry the gospel to a disbelieving world, a world very similar to our own that really doesn't want to hear the message at all. Look back over the Old Testament. I think you'll find example after example of this very very point. There was Abraham who was called to leave his homeland and his father's house which simply meant that he and his family were to go to a place that Abraham had never seen and that he knew nothing about simply on God's say-so. I I imagine that he wasn't comfortable with that. In fact, I've been in some Bible classes where the men have chimed in and said, I I imagine just telling his wife, by the way, load up the truck, we're moving. That couldn't have been comfortable. And then when she asked, where are we moving to? And Abraham's response was, I'm not real sure. It got even more uncomfortable. Later, he was given an even bigger challenge when he was told to go and to offer his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar. As a test of whether or not he believed God's promise to give him a host of offspring. You may remember that God had promised that you will have many descendants. In fact, he gave him a couple of visual aids. He, he asked him to go out on a starlit night and to count the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. The grains of, of, of sand at the seashore, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And yet now God has challenged Abraham to go and to sacrifice his only son through which that promise might be realized. Here's a question that Abraham simply had to have asked himself at some point and maybe at at every step of that journey. And that was, how if their only son, their only heir died, was he going to be able to have innumerable descendants? Once again, to his credit, Abraham did it anyway. He did exactly what God said that he should do. Abraham's reasoning is even supplied in the biblical text it says that he knew that God even had the ability to raise one from the dead so maybe that's how he's going to work this out but nonetheless Abraham did that which was incredibly uncomfortable and then you turn a few pages and there's Moses who was called to be the deliverer of the Israelite people from Egyptian bondage. He had to stand toe-to-toe and nose-to-nose with the most powerful ruler in the world and to tell him forthrightly, let my people go. You know that Moses didn't want the job. In fact, there was three different ways that, that Moses said, I am not qualified to be the deliverer of the people. I don't believe I can do that. But you also know the biblical record says that God managed to persuade Moses to take on that job anyway. He was then called to lead those ungrateful, belly bellyaching people for 40 years in the wilderness and to lead them to a place that he himself would never be allowed to enter. What about Joshua, who was challenged to step into the enormous shoes of Moses and to lead Israel in the conquest of their, of their promised land against nations that were larger and more powerful than they were? Or then there were Samson and Deborah and the other judges who were raised up to deliver the people from oppression against what seemed to at the time be insurmountable odds. And then there was Nathan. Man, you talk about somebody being uncomfortable. This whole biblical account about Nathan's interaction with King David, I have to admit, makes me uncomfortable. I cannot imagine... Nathan getting that visitation assignment, can you? And yet God had told him, I want you to go and I want you to speak to the king. To who? To the king. And here's the message that I want you to take him. And he was sent to tell King David a parable about a rich man who stole and slaughtered a poor man's little pet lamb. Again, how would you like to have gotten that assignment? But Nathan did it and he told God or, or told... Uh, David, what God wanted him to know and to hear, and and, and what he did, David heard the story about that hard-hearted guy that stole his neighbor's lamb, and he said, whoever that is, he deserves to die. At the time, he had not got Nathan had not gotten to the application part, and so he's feeling irate at someone who would have that kind of calloused attitude uh, toward someone's pet lamb. And then Nathan, unflinching in the face of the mighty king, then said, you are the man. And he exposed his murderous adultery with Bathsheba. Now, you know, we could go on and on paging through the Old Testament. I guarantee you, there's almost an endless supply of examples and illustrations of the Old Testament of people who were called upon to do the will of God and it put them in a very awkward situation. They had to have been incredibly uncomfortable and they could have said, listen, God, that's just outside my comfort zone. I don't think I'm going to take that on. And and almost every page you turn to, you'll find some illustration how that Daniel prayed when it could have cost him his life. And other prophets who were spokesmen for God that were ignored and mocked and sometimes even killed, daring to tell uncomfortable truths to those disbelieving, rebellious people. And then we turn to the New Testament and we find the story of of the willingness of people to do that which was inconvenient and uncomfortable all through the New Testament as well. You may remember that at the very outset of his ministry, Jesus called James and John to follow him. Now that sounds like a simple kind of instruction, doesn't it? Just come and follow me. And that was basically all that, that he said to them, at least according to the biblical record. And they, without hesitation, left their father and their nets and their families and their family business. And they followed Jesus. They could have used that defense, couldn't they? Lord, that's not in my comfort zone. To be able to leave all of this behind and just come and follow you without asking any questions, I don't, I don't believe I'm going to do that. And then there was the time and the man who told Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Just let me go first and bury my father. That sounds like a reasonable sort of a request and Jesus said well let the dead bury the dead you come and follow me and then he went on to say in terms of application no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God that sounds kind of harsh doesn't it and then when the disciples argued again about who among them was the greatest in the kingdom Jesus said he who would be great among you must become the servant of all let me think of that one for a moment. That, that's going to require some digesting. And then when he sent the uh, the apostles to begin to proclaim the kingdom, he said to them, "If they hated if they hated me, listen, they're going to hate you. That doesn't sound exactly like a let's go out and win one for the Gipper speech, does it? I want you to go out and I want you to do my will, but I want you to know that people are going to hate you because of it. That's not in my comfort zone. And then when the religious leaders... In Jerusalem, threatened Peter and John if they kept on preaching in the name of Jesus. Acts 5 verse 29 contains one of the most courageous statements in scripture. We must obey God rather than men. They weren't the least bit concerned about what made them comfortable or not. And then when he called Saul of Tarsus to become the great apostle Paul, he said, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Imagine of all the things that God could have told Paul when he said, I'm going to make you as the primary ambassador to the Gentile world. The the one thing that God chose to emphasize was, a lot of people are gonna be persecuting you, Paul. I'm going to show you how many people and how many times you're going to be persecuted because you're going to be carrying my message to the Gentile world. And then when he called Saul to do that, Saul, he went. He did exactly what God told him to do. And that same Paul told Timothy, I want you to, to preach the word in season and out of season. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means when it's convenient and when it's not. You need to be preaching the word whether people are listening or whether they're not listening. And when some early Christians were tempted to to give up following Jesus because of intense persecution that had come upon them, the writer of Hebrews told them, listen, you have not yet resisted until the point of shedding your blood. You think you've been persecuted, but until you've shed some blood, you haven't really been persecuted for my name's sake. Now, Now here's the bottom line, and you probably were wondering if we would ever get to it. The bottom line of all of these experiences is simply this. The words comfortable and convenient, while we may use them a lot in our modern day vocabularies, are not words that you will find anywhere in the Bible. The Bible knows nothing in precept or in practice of comfort zones. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, good folks, that bothers me. I would prefer to do what I'm comfortable with. I would prefer to do something that's convenient or at least be able to do a hard task or a difficult situation at a convenient time. But you don't read that in the Bible. And again, I challenge you to go through Old Testament and New Testament and you'll find every man or woman that did the will of God at some point in their life had to come to grips with the fact that this isn't going to be convenient and this isn't going to be comfortable. And especially after the day of Pentecost in Acts the second chapter, the Bible says that so many of those people who became those early believers, the first adherents and disciples of Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price. They were content to stay in Jerusalem, but Acts eight and verse four says that when that great persecution came upon the Christians in Jerusalem, they went everywhere spreading the word. Rather than saying, man, this wasn't comfortable for me, I think I'm going to keep quiet about it. Wherever they went, as they were dispersed from Jerusalem, they continued to share the message. Now, let me ask at this point, why Why does sometimes the Christian life have to be so hard? Why is it that God calls upon us to... To do away with the idea of comfort zones in our lives. Why so many challenges? Why so many obstacles? And why is it a mistake to bike away from anything and everything that makes us uncomfortable in our spiritual journey? I believe the simple answer is this. And it's still hard for me to say. Because we need it. Because that is exactly what makes us strong and yet we still want to shy away from it or even run away from it it builds our faith it increases our spiritual stamina and our spiritual endurance and that's why James opens his letter to those oppressed Christians the way he did it was read a moment ago but let's read it again I'm going to start with verse 2 verse one's the introduction James chapter 1 beginning with verse 2 my brothers count it all joy I need to already start over. I have problems swallowing that. Count it all joy. Yes, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Maybe James meant something else, but he said joy here. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. Now, if I'm reading those three verses correctly, James is telling me and you that the only way we're ever going to develop any kind of spiritual strength and spiritual fiber in our lives is for us to experience trials. In fact, he says that you ought to get to the point in your Christian life. When you have seen that happen over and over to the point that when you see trouble coming, you're going to rejoice. Now, church, I'm not there yet. How about you? Oftentimes, I can look back over a troublesome time in my life and say, hey, that worked out well, didn't it? And so I'm happy about that. But while I'm in the middle of the suffering, When the persecution or the temptation or the trial or whatever it is is going on in my life, at that moment it is very, very difficult even for the most mature of Christians to give thanks for that experience. And yet that's exactly what James is calling upon us and challenging us to do. And I want to think about that with you for just a few minutes this morning. You see, without trials, we don't learn how to be steadfast. And without steadfastness, we don't grow spiritually to the point that James describes here, where he says, eventually you will become perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. And we know that the word perfect there simply means full grown or fully mature. It doesn't mean flawlessly or sinlessly perfect. That's not what he's talking about. But he is saying, here's... Here's how high the bar is raised in your spiritual life. Here's what you need to be shooting for. And that is that you be perfect, full grown, fully mature, lacking in nothing. That is everything in your spiritual life has developed to the point where you are not self-sufficient, you now recognize just how God-sufficient you really are. But you trust him in every experience of life that he's going to see you through it and that he's not going to give you a single trouble, a single problem, a single trial that he does not also equip you to be able to handle. That's wonderful spiritual insurance. And James says that's that's really all a part of the package here. You know, there's been a, if I may use a, a quick illustration, there's always been a debate in college football as to whether playing cupcake games, uh, especially if it comes before a really big game in the schedule, whether that is helpful or harmful. On the one hand, there are people that say, well, it, it, you know, if you're playing a team that's uh, not near, even if you win 63 to nothing, uh, at least you're, you're, you're getting a good scrimmage and you're building the confidence of the players. On the other hand, our insistence, our our decision to to play a a soft game, especially one right before a big game in the schedule, that doesn't help us at all. Because you're not battle-tested. Because you haven't seen what you're made of yet. You've only played the weaker opponent. I'm just saying that maybe As James talks about this this dynamic in our lives, our insistence on not doing anything that makes us uncomfortable is the very thing that makes us weak. I don't like that. But it's still truth. And I must learn to accept that and then assimilate that in my spiritual life, beginning with the way I think about everything. God's, God's word just tells us over and over what we need. I, and, and folks, I mean what we desperately need are the challenges that will build our spiritual resistance and give us the spiritual stamina that James here describes. You know, weightlifters will tell you that you gain strength only by gradually increasing the amount of the resistance. You don't stay with what you're comfortable with, In fact, I think probably it's a law somewhere that every gym in the world has to have this sign on the wall, no pain, no gain. You've you've heard that over and over again. And that really is true. If if there's no pain involved, you probably aren't training right and and you aren't growing in your resistance the way you ought to. What I'm saying is Arnold did not become Arnold by staying with the five-pound barbells. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you may have heard of an experiment, because some of your tax dollars went to finance this, called Biosphere 2. It was a three-plus-acre artificial ecosystem that was built out in Arizona and was completed in the early 1990s. Well, it actually was a sequence of enclosed buildings, and, and it housed various types of ecological systems, such as forests, grasslands a working farm, rainforests, and it even had its own miniature ocean. Well, the idea was to experiment with artificial ecosystems that could sustain human life in outer space. What can I say? Your tax dollars at work. But that was the reasoning for, for the expenditure of literally billions of dollars. Well, it wasn't in operation for very long before scientists began to notice Hey, we have a problem. And and, and the problem was, stay with me as I give you the scientific jargon. The trees were falling down. That was the problem. The trees were falling down. Not only that, but other life forms that depended on the trees were also failing. So obviously, they determined something was was very wrong. Well, no real surprise. It took millions more tons of money and, and research, but they finally discovered the problem. And the problem can be summarized in two words. No wind. As trees grow, the wind causes them to sway and bend. And that results in what is known as stress wood. The strongest fibers in the tree that enable it to withstand the strains and the stresses once it's full grown. And it makes it less likely to break in a storm. But it's the absence of the wind. No development of this strength, so no ability to withstand the storms, the high winds, or even their own weight. And so, guess what? In Biosphere 2, almost without exception, the trees just fell down. Now, common sense and the good book dictate that that we as God's people have to have that kind of resistance strength too. And when life's experience challenges us to get out of our comfort zones and teaches us to cope with circumstances that are far less than ideal, bottom line is, though, they help us to grow in our faith and our steadfastness. If that's not what James is saying in our text, I have no clue what he is saying. Now here's the flip side of that spiritual coin. When we always avoid the uncomfortable and the inconvenient elements of our faith, we don't develop anything similar to this stress wood, the fiber that makes us strong, that that gives us this spiritual endurance, this, this perseverance that James is talking about. And the result is that we will always stay weak. And I hate to be the one to break it to you, we will eventually fall. Just like those trees did. Dan was, and and I'll call him Dan because that was his name, was 18 years old when he was captured after his B 24 bomber, of which Dan was the nose gunner, was shot down over Yugoslavia after a bombing raid on the oil fields of Romania. This was a part of. What was known as the Death March through Germany in the winter of 1945. As one of the 5,000-plus U.S. soldiers that had been taken as prisoners of war, they marched, get this, 600 miles in 86 days in one of the severest winters on record. They had very little clothing, even less food, and so they ate anything they could. Like grass, or anything they could catch, like rats. I am not making this up. On occasion, they would really hit the jackpot and they would happen up on an abandoned farm. And sometimes they would find the old, fermented, spoiled food that they had fed the pigs, and they would eat that. Not surprisingly, about a third of the 5,000 plus died. And when they were finally liberated and put on a ship home, Dan was so thin, so emaciated, and so famished, you know what he did? He would get in the chow line, have them put as much food possible on their plates, and he would eat that. And then he would get back in line and have them load his plate up again and then rinse and repeat. He could not get enough to eat. He did that over and over again. So in 1953, just eight years after his ordeal, Dan thought that it would be a good idea to write his experiences down so that someday his descendants, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on, would be able to read about what he had experienced. And the reason that he thought it was important for him to write that down for his descendants was because he thought with the terrific trauma that had been done to his body by that experience that he wouldn't live long enough to see his grandkids or his great grandkids. But you know what church? Dan didn't die young. He lived into his mid eighties. Now here's a question. Why didn't he die young? How did he make it to be 80 plus? How did so many World War II vets who survived D-Day or or the sinking of the Indianapolis and other horrendous experiences in prison camps live well into their 90s? It defied all logic and science. And the answer was, what they had experienced made them tough. It made them endure. They, They survived because of those experiences and not in spite of them. And that's exactly, that's exactly what James is telling us will happen to us if we gladly endure the trials and the troubles of life. Once again, the problem is we don't want to hear that. I, I don't want to hear that there are problems inherent in living the Christian life. I don't want to hear that there are times when I will have to pay a price For my discipleship, I don't want to hear that sometimes I will lose family members and we will be ostracized over religious spiritual issues. I don't want to hear that there's a difficult time coming for me in my Christian journey. I don't want to hear that. I'd rather turn on my TV and have some TV evangelist tell me that if I follow Jesus, I'll never have another problem and my kids will always act correctly and I'll always have plenty of money in my bank account. That's what I'd like to hear. But folks, you don't get that in the Bible. God has never given us those kinds of promises. He has told us what we reap, we will sow. That's about as close as you can get to a health and wealth philosophy. But he has told us that there are going to be difficult times. And if you'll notice, many of these letters in the New Testament began very similar to the way the book of James begins. By warning people, hey listen, tough times are here or tough times are coming. Peter writes his first letter to an oppressed people saying there's another wave of persecution coming. Well thanks so much for cheering us up Peter. No, I'm I'm writing this so that you will know. Because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And you need to know that it's coming. And you need to know that there's a price to be paid. But you also need to know that it will be worth it. You will never regret your decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll come to the point in your spiritual life where when you experience these trials not in spite of, but because you're a child of God, because you choose to call yourself a Christian, that you will be blessed beyond measure. And someday you'll hear God himself say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's worth living for. And folks, it's also worth dying for. Now, on my negative days, I have to admit that we are living in a messed up world. And I've never seen our world or even our nation, our culture, as messed up as it is right now. But I don't lose heart because I know that that's just a part of living the life as a child of God. And the more you stand for what's right, the more difficult people are going to make it for you who think that what you think is wrong. And and they don't like the way that you live your life and even the way that you try to influence and encourage other people to live as Christ would have them to live. Let me tell you, if, if we're going to be shielding ourselves from trials and from anything that will make us uncomfortable, once again, James' conclusion is that we will never develop any kind of spiritual perseverance or endurance. And what will happen when the wind begins to blow In our lives. Some of you know. I'm talking to a heartache on every pew. Some of you know exactly what it means to stand for Jesus in a world that will not tolerate that, or even in a home where there are people. That you love so very much, you've decided to turn their backs on Jesus. And you know what that feels like. What happens, James says, when the winds began to blow in your life? I will not reflect upon your intelligence by answering that question for you, because you know exactly what will happen. So what's, what is the lesson in all of this for us today? Should we go out looking for trouble so, th- so that we can grow stronger? Is that James' message for us? Should we deliberately add weights to our own barbells so that we can develop that that strength, that endurance? Well, no, no, there's no need for that. Because, you see, living, living by faith in an ungodly world is going to present plenty of challenges, more than enough resistance, enough opposition to build your faith and your spiritual strength without you ever once having to go out looking for trouble. It'll come to you. Trouble will find you even if you're not looking for trouble because there's always going to be that abrasion, that conflict between the kingdom of this world of which you and I are a part or, or the kingdom of Christ of which you and I are a part as opposed to the, the, the worldly kingdom that's standing against everything that we're trying to stand for. Now the takeaway I think from, from this lesson and this passage in particular should be this. And again, I, I kind of feel like a prophet up here because I, I it, only in the sense that I know that this isn't easy to hear. But I think here's the starting place. Embrace the fact that it isn't going to be easy. Don't live in denial and say, if I, if I choose to become a Christian, God's going to bless me in every way. He will, but that's all that will happen. No, that's not the way it works. There's going to be a price that's going to be paid. And and that that just because something is difficult or or even uncomfortable or inconvenient or or threatening even does not mean that we should avoid it. It may just be the very challenge that we need to help us grow and, and to equip us for the other challenges that we will find down the road somewhere. You see, if we consistently avoid the inconvenient. We miss an opportunity to grow in our faith. Playing it safe will make us like those trees that we talked about in Biosphere 2. At some point, we'll just fall down for no apparent reason. And there will be people in this good church that will look around and say, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. I haven't seen them in a long, long time. But there is a reason any time a child of God lays down their armor and they leave the field of battle and defeat. And here's the reason. They turned away from the challenges and the circumstances and the situations in life that would cause them to grow. They avoided them rather than embrace them like James said, count it all joy. They opted for a convenient faith and they chose the path of least resistance for a comfortable faith and they paid the price. We started with a scripture reading. I want to end with one. This comes from Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us, here it is, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Did you notice those two things in particular? Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith. But also lay aside the sin, because all that's going to do is entangle you and weigh you down and keep you from running with endurance. The race that God has set before each and every one of us. And then he goes on to say, "For who for the joy. He's talking about the Lord now. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You talk about uncomfortable. He went to the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If I've read that correctly. That's Hebrews 12, one through three. Every one of us, every single one of us needs to stop right now and praise God that Jesus did not decide to do what was comfortable and convenient for him when he went to the cross. I'm so glad he got outside his comfort zone and he stretched out his arms and he allowed them to nail those, those nails, those spikes, through his hands and through his feet. Because he knew that he was doing something that was absolutely necessary for God's will to be done in this world. And that's the salvation of lost humanity that includes every single one of us. So I'm glad doesn't even begin to describe how I feel about Jesus taking the more difficult path of saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, your will be done. And how that he was willing to die for every single one of us and every person on this planet so that we might be able to someday spend eternity with him. So I, I ask you to consider this morning, Jesus Christ, to follow him, to walk in his footsteps, whether it's easy or not, and I can promise you that it won't always be easy, but it will always it will always be worth it. And you will never, ever regret your decision to follow Jesus. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?: Who will follow Jesus?